We're in a series, this is the last message in the uh, Sola series, the Solas of the Reformation. We've seen them over the uh, period of time, and I just want to start with a scripture reading out of Romans chapter 11, which will be in, in a couple weeks, but I couldn't help but uh, focus on this. Um, as I was studying for Romans, I thought, boy, I wish it would have fallen at the right time in this Sola series, because this is really the, the heart of it. Um, I want to begin in verse... 28, um, Paul begins in Romans chapter 11, verse 28. He says, as regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their uh, disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. I want to read a little story for you as we start off here this morning, and you'll figure out what it's about as we go through it. The night is dark and it's cold. A fierce wind rattles the window panes. A small 10-year-old boy tiptoes quietly down the stairs. He cups his hand and shields the light from a candle he's holding, trying not to awaken the others in the house. Slowly, ever so slowly, he pushes on the door to the study. He knows it will squeak unless it's open very, very slowly. And if anyone hears him, his mission will be over. Johann Sebastian Bach has a burning desire to play new music. Since his parents died, Johann lives with his brother, a church organist. His brother keeps his music locked away since he thinks it's, it's too valuable to be used by children. <laughs> Johann has already mastered the beginner pieces and now wants something more difficult to practice. Johann sets down his candle and squeezes his arm through the lattice of the locked music cabinet. Very carefully, he rolls a manuscript and eases it out of the cabinet. He spreads the precious pages out on the table. The rest of his night will be spent carefully copying the notes of the piece he will begin to learn the following day. Once he has copied the final line, he carefully places the music back in the locked cabinet. Johann returns to his bed, filled with anticipation of playing that new piece of music. For young Johann, music is more than something to listen to or just to practice. It can cheer him up when he's sad. Music is the way Johann Bach expresses his thoughts and even his feelings. Johann Bach's love of music and dedication to practice begin to pay off. At just 17 years of age, he got his first job as the church organist. His Lutheran family was pleased to see him carry on the family tradition in music. Word of his music... musical abilities quickly spread throughout the land. And one day, he went to compete... In an organ contest, only to learn that there was no contest. The judges said to him, I guess you've won the organ contest, Johann. 
He says, but I haven't even played a single note. How did I win? Well, the Frenchman heard of your amazing talent and didn't want to risk getting beaten. Louise Marchand knows he can't beat you. See, when Johann played his music, he felt his soul praising God. In fact, he once said, I play the notes as they are written, but it is God who makes the music. After a few years, Johann got another job as a church organist and choir director at a small German church. He directed the choir and wrote the worship music used in the church service Sunday after Sunday. But even though he used his musical abilities and talents to glorify the Lord, a problem soon arose. Johann, people are complaining about the music you've been composing. (laughs) Bach was stunned. He knew that some of his recent pieces were his best work. What possibly could be the problem with them? The man continued, the music is is too showy. Some of our members even think it's sinful. Music should be simple so that it draws attention to God, not to the music or to the performers. Bach couldn't believe this. His music was sinful? How could people call his music sinful when he only tried to glorify God? Bach took a deep breath before defending his music. He said, the main purpose of my music is to glorify God. Some people do this with music that is simple. I haven't chosen to use a simple style. But my music comes from my heart as a humble offering to God. This honors God no matter what musical style I use. Unfortunately, Bach and the church could not agree on the matter, so he started looking for another job. In fact, he changed jobs so often during his life, searching for the freedom to write music, that it was, just became one of the things he did. He finally found a temporary refuge in the town of Weimar. And this was the first time that Bach did not work for a church. But his boss, the Duke, was a religious man. The Duke encouraged Bach to continue writing sacred music. And for a while, Bach had the freedom for which he had searched. Even though Duke gave Johann the freedom to write the music he wanted to, Johann never forgot that it was God who made the music through him. Whenever he began a new piece... He bowed his head and he prayed, Jesus, help me show your glory through the music I write. May it bring you joy even as it brings joy to your people. Without Jesus' help, Johann knew he'd never be able to complete the task. Before even writing one note, Johann carefully formed the letters JJ at the top of the page. And with that, the music began to pour out of his soul and onto the page. When he was finally satisfied with what he wrote, he wrote the letters S-D-G at the bottom of the page. Soli Deo Gloria, for the glory of God alone. He hoped that when the music was played, it would point toward God. Now you know a lot about Bach. He was probably one of the most brilliant composers ever. And even though the peace that he found there with the Duke of of Vimar, he didn't last. It gave him temporary relief from the problem he experienced earlier. Instead of having to please the whole church with the music he wrote, he only had to please the Duke. And while the people of his day recognized Bach as a great organist, They never accepted him as a great composer. As a matter of fact, when he died in 1750, his music was considered old-fashioned and had been forgotten by most people. It was not until almost 80 years later that his music was rediscovered 
1829, the composer Felix Mendelssohn found a copy of Bach's St. Matthew's Passion, the story of Jesus' crucifixion and death, and he decided to perform it. And the people who heard the performance of Bach's music loved it. They wondered why his music had been forgotten. Now that people knew about Bach's music, they began performing it at concerts and in churches around the world. Bach became more famous 100 years after his death than he had ever been while he was alive. But he never desired to become famous. His desire was to glorify God. And today his music is played and studied around the world. It's used in almost every Christian denomination. It's safe to say that most people now agree that Bach's music truly is solely deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. This brings us to our last study of these five solas. In Psalm chapter 3, verse 8, it said, Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. The Reformation was just about that. That salvation belongs to the Lord and the Lord alone. We've gone through these five solos. And just so you understand where we've been, we started off with Sola Scriptura, the Bible alone. And this is really the formal principle of the Reformation. It gives us direction. It gives us a foundation upon which the other four solas were to be established. So you understand that Scripture alone was established to be the authority. Not Scripture and anything else. Not Scripture and the Pope. Scripture alone. Not scripture and the traditions of men or the traditions of the church. No, scripture alone. Not even scripture and the church councils. No, scripture and scripture alone. And then we looked at Solus Christus. Christ alone, the second week. The meaning that salvation has been accomplished by Christ and Christ alone. Not by Christ and our good works. <laughs> no, but by Christ alone. Not by Christ and our moral standing in our community. No, by Christ alone. Not even by Christ in our religious activities. No, by Christ alone. Solus Christus, Christ alone, basically teaches that salvation is found exclusively in Christ's work on the cross, and in Christ alone. Thirdly, we looked at sola gratia, grace alone. Sola meaning alone at the beginning of each of these in Latin. And when we looked at grace alone that week, we realized that salvation for those, salvation was meant for those who don't deserve it. That salvation was for those who had no merit to deserve it. Salvation was meant for those who had no goodness in and of themselves to acquire salvation. That salvation was a free gift. That it was a free gift offered without any cost whatsoever to those receiving it. Even though it cost Christ dearly. Steve Lawson said this, salvation was not a reward for the righteous. It is a gift for the guilty. That's what salvation is. Salvation is not a reward for the righteous. Because the last time I checked, the Bible says there is none. <laughs> but it is a gift for the guilty. Grace alone. Fourthly, we looked at Sola fide, faith alone. The idea that salvation is acquired by faith alone. Just like sola scriptura was the formal principle upon all which these five or four solas really uh, are built, 
Sola fide is said to be the material principle. In other words, it involves every matter, every material of the gospel. The idea that we are justified by what? By faith. It was upon that material principle, faith alone, that Martin Luther in 1517 nailed that 95 thesis to the door at the church of Wittenberg. Calvin called justification by faith the main hinge upon which salvation turns. See, it's the cornerstone of our faith, beloved. If you get this wrong, you get salvation wrong. Faith alone, sola fide. Well, today we come to the last sola, soli dio gloria, for the glory of God alone. And this is held to be last in our series because it is simply the culmination of the other four. It's the apex, the crescendo, you might see, the zenith of all the other four solas lead into this one. Gerhardus Voss noted in his essay, The Doctrine of the Covenant in Reformed Theology. He's called it the root idea of Reformed Theology. And it unlocks the rich treasures of Scripture, the very glory of God. He said this, Herein is what distinguished the the Reformed tradition. It began not with man, but with God. It began not with man, but it began with God. Voss writes, God does not exist because of man, but man because of God. This is what is written at the entrance of the temple of Reformed theology. We don't believe in a man-centered salvation. We believe in a God-centered salvation. So we conclude our study of these five solas with the ultimate finish in mind, you might say, with God purposing the glorifying of himself in salvation of sinners by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, According to Scripture alone. This is where all the other four solas lead to. The glory of God. It's the centerpiece of the solas around which they revolve. See, we are justified by faith alone. Because all of the work and the glory goes to who? To God alone in Christ. We look to Scripture alone because only the Word of God, the precious Word of God, is that which is perfect, revealing God and His salvation. God is most glorified when His Word is most trusted. Our salvation is by grace alone because God acts out of His own motive to glorify Himself. And not because he sees something special in us. He's most glorified when we acknowledge that we owe him everything. And not because of our own self-worthiness. Our salvation is won solely through the work of Christ. And so God is the only one who is glorified through Christ. See, if you mess up on any of those doctrines, then the glory is shared with ourselves. Apart from Christ and apart from God. And that's the problem with who we are as fallen human beings. Romans 3.23, all have sinned in what? Fall short of what? The glory of God. See, we were made to be holy as God is holy. And so to glorify God through our our living in perfect harmony with God is reflecting his holiness. Now, obviously, we failed at the task. And we all know that nothing we could do ever possibly, even if we desire it with all of our heart, could reverse that failure that we're steeped in sin 
that we have fallen short of God's glory. And you ask, well, how is the dilemma resolved? How is it going to be solved? It wasn't by us. But it was by God who sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life here on this earth 30-some years, and then offered the perfect sacrifice, the perfect lamb of God, and then was raised on the third day. See, to God alone be the glory, beloved. The doctrine really provides the, the calibration we need in our daily lives. I mean, life is complicated today. You're indulged with just information just coming at you from every angle. Your time is stretched. If you could ask one question throughout the day, what would it be that would bring that thinking back to a biblical standard, that would put it on the right track? It would simply be, what glorifies God? What glorifies God? In our relationships, maybe our spouse is unreasonable. Why should I be the one to give in to this situation? Well, what glorifies God? Why should I work hard at, at my job when everybody else is sloughing off and still getting paid the same or more than I do? Well, what glorifies God? What if I don't get my fair share? How do you respond to that? Well, what glorifies God? Ask that question of yourself in both small and big decisions. What will give God the most honor, the most glory? And you'll be surprised how such a simple question can resolve some of the most complex decisions that we have to have and make in life. Ask yourself that question when you ponder how you're treating your neighbor. Ask yourself that question when you ponder how you're treating your spouse, your family, your children. As you sit here this morning, ask yourself that question right now. Is what I'm doing now glorifying God? I want to go through some scriptures in the Old Testament. They're listed there in your outline. The first is found in 1 Chronicles chapter 16, verses 10, 24. And these are just a, a purview of some of the ones in the Old Testament. It says, Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Declare his glory among the nations. Or Psalm 29, verses 1 to 3 and 9. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders the Lord over many waters. And in his temple all cry, what? Glory. Or Isaiah chapter 6. We know this well. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. And with two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And the one called to another. And they said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is what? Full of his glory. Or Isaiah chapter 24 verses 14 to 16. says they lifted up their voices. They sing for joy over the majesty of the Lord. They shout from the west. Therefore in the, in the, therefore in the east give glory to the Lord. In the coastlands of the sea give glory to the name of the Lord. The God of Israel. From the ends of the earth, we hear songs of praise of glory to the righteous one. Isaiah 43, verses 6 and 7. I say, I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created, look at this, for my glory 
whom I formed and made. Or Habakkuk 2.14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. These are just a small portion, beloved, of scriptures that speak about the glory of God. We exist, all the world exists, to behold, to experience, to magnify, to proclaim, and to live for and give glory to God and God alone. It is for his glory, God's glory, that he created the world and all that exists. It's for his glory that God planned and executed the plan of redemption. It's to the cause of God's glory that he is moving all history into the future climax of Christ's ultimate return and establishing a new heaven and a new earth. And his own glory is his only aim. We don't only see that in the Old Testament. We also see it in the New Testament. In Luke chapter 2 verse 14 it says, glory to God in the highest and on, on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Or Matthew five sixteen. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to you. No, to your Father who is in heaven. Or 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whatever you do, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Ephesians 1.12, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might to the praise, might be to the praise of his glory. Revelation 4.11, worthy are you, O Lord and God, what's it say? To receive glory. And then when Christ comes into the picture in John chapter 1 verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen what? His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Or John chapter 11, verse 4. But when Jesus heard it, he said, The illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Do you ever stop and think about maybe the illness that you have is for the glory of God? Tough thing to ponder. But trust me, I've talked to many people over the years who've gotten horrible diseases. Not just cancer, other things. And yet God spared their life. And when they look back on their life, they say, you know what, I wouldn't change a thing. I wouldn't change a thing. Because somehow God took that horrible part of my life and he turned it around for his glory. It kind of changes your outlook on things when we're going through trials and tribulations. John 8, 34 says, Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me. That's an interesting passage of Scripture when you have time to look at that. See, Jesus wasn't some glory hound down here, just, oh, everybody's going to give me glory, even though he was God. His desire was to do what? The will of the Father, to glorify the Father. We need to be careful of that. Sometimes we misplace glory. Sometimes we get feeling a little too good about ourselves, even in Christ. And we forget that the only reason that we're in Christ is for his glory, not our own. Except by the grace of God, right? There go I. We need to remember that when we're out there witnessing to a lost and dying world who desperately needs to hear not only about the glory of God, but the grace and the forgiveness that is found in Christ Jesus. Matthew 25, 31, it says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. 
What a wonderful day that'll be. Or Hebrews chapter 1 verse 13. He is the radiance of the glory of God. The exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Who's he talking about? He's talking about Christ. It's Christ who holds this universe together. And one day, beloved, the the, the word of God says that one day he will let go. And when he does, literally all hell is going to break loose. Or 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 18. To Christ be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Revelation 5.13. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessed and honor and glory and might forever and ever. See, the glory of God is the glory of Christ. For Jesus Christ is God. God the Father is glorified through the Son, and the Son is also glorified by the Father. We can't separate those two. And all created life exists for their glory. See, this is this last sola, soli dio gloria. For God's glory alone. The portion of scripture we started off reading in Romans 11.36 is probably one of the the most famous doxologies in all of scripture. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Well, I want to ask a couple questions to kind of break this down. It's great to talk about the glory of God. But the first question is, what is the glory of God? What is it? We throw that word around. The glory of God is none other than the holiness of God put on display. It's the holiness of God put on display. It's the infinite worth of God made manifest, you might say. Isaiah in chapter 6, he shifts from holy to to glory. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of what? His holiness? No, he says his glory. They're interchangeable terms. When the holiness of God fills the earth for people to see, it's called glory. What does that word mean, holy then? If, if, if glory means it's the holiness of God put on display, well, what does that mean when we say the holiness of God? It simply means this. It means separated from the common. The holiness of God is his infinite separation from everything else. It's what makes him infinite. What makes him one of a kind. Like the the rarest, most precious, perfect diamond in the world. And there's no other like it. God's uniqueness as the only God, his godness, you might say, makes him infinitely valuable, makes him infinitely holy. John Piper says it this way, God's glory is the beauty and greatness of his manifold perfections. God's glory is the beauty and greatness of his manifold perfections. He goes on, he says, I say manifold perfections because specific aspects of God's being are said to have glory. For example, we read the glory of his grace or the glory of his might. God himself is glorious because he is the perfect unity of all his manifold and glorious perfection. So the glory of God is how we designate that infinite beauty, that infinite greatness to the person of God. Well, who is to be glorified? Who is to be glorified? The answer is simply the sovereign God of the universe. See, from our perspective as human beings, we always start with man. Paul was a little different. 
Paul always started with God, and he always ended with God. And he kind of sandwiched man in between somehow. And when you look at the letter of the Romans that we're going through, it's very clearly outlined. As a matter of fact, one commentator, Donald Gray Barnhouse, he published 10 volumes on Romans. And of the the 10, he reflected on Paul's focus in those 10 volumes. Volume 1 was titled, Man's Ruin. That's the only one that has man mentioned in the title of the volume. The other ones are God's wrath, God's remedy, God's river, God's grace, God's freedom, God's heirs, God's covenants, God's discipline, and God's glory. And we have to be willing to say with Paul, to God be glory forever, amen. See, even though we think highly of ourselves at times, this is not about us. I mean, do you understand when God saved you, it wasn't about you being in heaven one day? That's what we think. That's the outcome. It's a wonderful, glorious outcome. We, we desire that. But don't think for one second, that's why God saved you. He saved you for his glory. For his glory. Not your glory. Not so you can prance into heaven one day and say, hey, look at me, I'm here. It's funny when people have different concepts of heaven. You know, you hear Christians talking. Oh man, first thing I'm going to do when I get to heaven, I'm going to go up to, you know, the Apostle Paul. Or I'm going to talk to this. No, you're not. No, you're not. Do you understand what it means to be in heaven? You are going to be in the presence of a perfect, holy, glorious God and creator. I don't even think we'll be able to catch our breath for the first 10 million years. Let alone say anything other than, whoa, holy is you. And on our faces, worshiping him. We're not going to be, hey, how'd you get here, George? Oh, good to see you. We're going to be focused on God and God alone. Why? Because he didn't save us to have a party in heaven one day. He saved us for what? His glory. We need to be reminded of this. We need to get back to the idea that we need to have a high view of the God that saved us. Not a low view. Not a view that says, oh yeah, you know, Jesus is my best buddy. You know, he saved me. Or the man upstairs. That's not a high view of God. You know, we don't need to come here on a Sunday morning and play games with each other. We don't need to come here to be entertained. We don't need to come here to put on some show. This is not about us. It's about who? It's about God. So we need to stop and we need to ask ourselves, when we come here and we are worshiping God, what are we doing? Are we giving him glory? Are we praising God? Or are we drawing attention to ourselves somehow? We need to think about these things. Because they touch the very heart of God. Who is being glorified? Just ask yourself that question the next time you utter a word. Or you raise a hand. Or you do anything. Is this going to glorify God or is this going to glorify me? I mean, there's nothing wrong with being alive and not dead while you're sitting out there. But at the same time, let's just be aware of that and say, hey, who is this glorifying? Thirdly, why should God be glorified? Pretty practical question, right? Why does he get all the glory? Well, the answer is given to us there in Romans, all right? It says, from him and through him and to him are all things. Speaking to what? Of salvation especially. Why is man saved? It's not because of anything men or women did by themselves, But they're saved, as we've learned over the past several weeks, by God's grace through faith in the object of Christ, in his work. 
It's because God elected us to salvation. That God has predestined his elect people to salvation from before the foundation of the world. So the last time I checked, I mean, some of you are older in the up in age, but you haven't been there since the foundation of the world. You weren't there when God chose you. You played no part in it. It's like when you show up to a meeting late and you walk in and they say, yeah, you know, you're the one that's doing the presentation. (laughs) Why why is that? Well, we all voted (laughs) and you weren't here to vote. So, you know, we, we we play no part in it. Well, how are we saved then? The answer is by the redeeming work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the very Son of God. Do you understand we could not save ourselves? But God saved us through that vicarious, atoning death of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, what about, what's, what's, how, do we, how do we come to faith in Christ? Isn't that what we do? Isn't that, we, we make that decision? Now, the answer is very clear in the word of God. It says, by the power of the Holy Spirit, through the effectual calling of God upon your heart and upon your soul. In other words, God quickens you to a new life. He transforms you. You might ask yourself, well, how then are we going to become holy? You have to understand the basic level here that holiness is not something that originates in us it doesn't originate in us it can't it isn't achieved by us it isn't something we worked for or something that we sustain in our lives by doing the right things how are we made holy we're made holy by God joining us to Christ So that we have become different persons than what we were before. That's why we're called new in Christ. We have a new life in Christ. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. He transformed us. He changed us. We have died to sin. And we've been made alive, the Bible says, to righteousness. A righteousness that is imputed to our account. Do you understand in your Christian life there is no other direction for you to go than forward? He is the strength of our life. He is the one that allows this to happen. Where are we headed to? The answer simply is heaven. How do we know that? Because the Bible says that Jesus is preparing a place for us. Well, how can we be sure we're going to get there one day? It's because God, who began the work of our salvation, the Bible says, will continue it until it's done. God never begins a work, beloved, and just kind of leaves it half done. Can you imagine if he did that with creation? You know, it's Wednesday. I'm going to just take that off. Or, you know, I'm I'm not going to finish this deal. It wouldn't be a good situation here on earth. He sees things through. God never begins a work that he does not eventually bring to a complete conclusion. See, it's to him be the glory forevermore. Isaiah 42, 8 says, So let us give God the glory, remembering that God himself says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another or praise to idols. Isaiah 48, 11 says, for my own sake, for my own sake, I can do this. How can I let myself be defamed? I will not yield my glory to another. Those are very bold and deep statements that God is making about his glory. So when you come to a place like Romans chapter 11, you see how salvation is leading into this doxology that we read this morning. After establishing the the simple principle that election is by grace with works excluded from consideration at all in Romans chapter 11 verses 5 and 6, he goes on to draw the unexpected conclusion that God can sign both the Jew and the Gentile to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. 
And the ultimate conclusion of that is a glorious one. It's one that says, you know what? We don't understand what you're doing, God. Your wisdom's unsearchable. Your ways are inscrutable. We can't even argue with this. And that's where he leads to in verse 36. From him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And that's the point in which the rich depths of of Paul's salvation leads. And it also begins in the next verse. If you look at the next verse in verse 1, chapter 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the what mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, what holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable or spiritual worship. See, when you stop and you understand that your salvation is only for his glory, it changes the whole game. It changes how you deal with a lot of things. Turn over to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 1. I just want to focus on a couple of these verses here. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. Paul writes here, he says, I thank him... Who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a great guy. No, he was a blasphemer. He was a persecutor. He was insolent, opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might be, might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Verse 17, he says this to the king of the ages, immortal, Invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. See, his salvation was not due to Paul finally cleaning up his act. He didn't say, yeah, I was a pretty bad dude and then I got things together and now I'm serving God. No. It was due to the overflowing, what, grace of our Lord. His confession of salvation is a trustworthy saying that Christ Jesus came into the world to save, what? Sinners. He came to save sinners. He didn't come to save those who think they're not sinners. He didn't come to save those who think they're righteous. He didn't come to save the religious folk. Came to save sinners. And Paul said, hey, you know what? You're looking at one right here. I'm number one. And given that the Lord had saved Paul, his point is simply that, you know what, there's no reason to doubt that he can also save anyone else who believes, no matter how bad they are. That's why he says the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, the honor and glory forevermore. Or if you jump over to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy 6. Verse 15 and 16. I love Paul's little doxologies he throws through Romans and through his epistles. You know, it's like he can't contain himself sometimes. He says in verse 13 there of chapter 6, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 15, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed 
and only what? Sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. Think about that one for a while. Next time you hear somebody, yeah, saw Jesus while I was shaving. Had a little chat in the morning. Yeah, I don't think so. It says, to him be honor and eternal dominion or glory forevermore. Amen. I mean, when you read these verses, I just want to point out seven quick observations here. They're in your outline. First of all, when you look at chapter 1 and chapter 6, we realize that ascribing glory to God and God alone is no way meant to exclude Christ. Some people say, well, why does he get all, why does God get all the glory, not Christ? Uh, last time I checked, Christ is God. <laughs> and it's just, you know, so we're on the same page. Um, the worship he directs to the only God in chapter 1, he directs to Christ in chapter 6. Why? Because Christ is God. Secondly, glory and honor are given to God. They're essentially considered, that is to say, in view of the divine nature. There's three persons of the Trinity. They're all one true eternal God. The same in substance, equal in power and glory. Glory is ascribed to one God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so as Christians, we worship one God. We don't worship three gods. Thirdly, as God alone receiving glory is the outcome of salvation, listen to this, it's also the purpose of salvation. That's why God saved you. That's abundantly clear when you read through the, the epistle to the Ephesians. Paul points out in verse 6 that election unto salvation was to the praise of his glorious grace. Or in verse 12, he says, The counsel of God's will concerning those who hope in Christ, those who are predestined to faith, was so that he might be to the praise of his glory. Or in verse 14, it talks about the sealing of the Holy Spirit for believers is likewise to the praise of his glory. See, God's motive in salvation was grace. But the end was his glory. Fourthly, there's an intimate connection between our salvation and God's glory. The two are not in competition in any way. But due to the fall into sin, man does not willingly glorify God or enjoy him. Salvation restores both elements. God receives the glory for saving such wretches as ourselves, and we begin to delight in the God of such sovereign grace who saved us. So there is a distinct connection between salvation and God's glory. Fifthly, it shouldn't be allowed to obscure the fact that there is a genuine sense in which God's glory is broader and even more ultimate than salvation. See, as human beings, we think, well, yeah, this is all about salvation. It's, well, not really. In Revelations chapter 4 and 5, there are visions of two heavenly worship services. The first describes glory, honor, and power to God in view of creation in verse 411. The second recounts a song sung to the Lamb for his saving work in chapter 5 of Revelation, verses 9 and 10. The grounds for glorifying God, then, are wider than just simply redemption. He's got more on his plate than just that. Ultimately, the grounds for glorifying God are as wide as God's own perfect being. Sixth, God is also therefore worthy of praise even before and apart from salvation. Just because you're saved, okay, if you're not saved here this morning, it doesn't mean that God still doesn't deserve glory. The glory of God is higher than the salvation of mankind. Now, true, it's only those who experience salvation who come willingly to glorify God. That's true. Be careful of making an idol out of that human good because there is none. 
God's mercy and grace are past all of our ability to express or even conceive. But it would be no kindness at all to, for all of us to replace God's supremacy in God's own purposes. Last thing, seventh, thus the Reformation soul has persistently put mankind in his place. I don't know about you, but the five studies we've been through have been kind of like going to the woodshed every, every time you get into these things. You mean this isn't about me? No, it's not about you. <laughs> it's all about the glory of God. You know, we have no knowledge of God apart from his self-revelation. We have no ability to earn our salvation But Christ must do all of this for us. He must do all of this in our place. We have no basis upon which to claim any benefits of Christ's work except God's kindness, his grace. Even when we come to receive Christ freely offered in the gospel, we give nothing in exchange. Faith is strictly receptive faculty. I was talking to someone before the service and they were mentioning about how a lot of people today misplace their faith as their faith. (laughs) They think somehow, yeah, oh yeah, I'm saved by faith alone. Well, the faith they're talking about is their own faith. Trust me, your own faith ain't going to save you from squat. You have to have a faith that is gifted to you by the God who created you. And so the four solos highlight this radical poverty of created and fallen man before the creating and redeeming God. And this last solo really reminds us where we stand. We're not the center of the universe, beloved. God is. God is. The sovereign covenant Lord tells us in Isaiah 43, 25... I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't say, I blot out your transgressions for your sake. He says, I do it for my sake. Even in salvation, beloved, we aren't central. It's God. God will be glorified and God will be glorified in salvation of sinners who can contribute nothing to their own salvation. In that way, it's no hindrance to our happiness that it is less important than God's glory. It's no small part of our joy and comfort to sing with ancient Israel as in Psalm 115.1, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Well, we read the verse earlier, whatever you do, whatever you eat, drink. Probably thinking right now, yeah, hurry up so we can get over there and eat something. It's all right, we're getting there. Give me a couple minutes. What did Paul mean by that? What do you mean, do all for the glory of God? What does that possibly mean? Well, you know what, to boil it down very simply... It's three things. First of all, seek to offend no one. Now, we're not going to be perfect. We're going to offend people left and right. But when we do, we need to make it right. We need to confess it. We need to go to that person. That's what glorifies God. Secondly, we need to have a heart that says, you know what? As Paul did, I want to kind of please everybody if possible. I want to go out of my way to make sure, not in a way that you're compromising things. Not a people pleaser, but you want people to be pleased with you. That's what the word of God says within the faith and outside the faith even. Make sure that your life is okay with people. And then secondly, Paul said, seek the salvation of as many as possible. I mean, that's the genius of Paul's life. He had but one ambition, to win men and women to the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter what they came up to him with. Paul wasn't a legalist, far from it. When you look at the life of Paul, he was the last person to live by this artificial set of rules and regulations. 
He cared nothing about pleasing men just to please them. On the other hand, he would do whatever it took to win people to Christ. You want to eat some meat? Hey, let's eat meat. Give me the T-bone. Oh, you're a vegetarian? Pass me the Brussels sprouts. I'm good with that. Oh, you're Jewish? Well, let's go to the temple. Oh, you're Greek? Well, let's talk about philosophy. Oh, you're Roman? Hey, how about those gladiators? Man, they're amazing. Keep the Sabbath? Fine. I'll keep it with you. Work on Saturday? No problem. I'll see you at Bible study tonight. I mean, he, he just crossed every boundary and said, you know what? I just want people to come to Christ. Paul lived and he breathed the gospel. His message never changed. He preached the same gospel wherever he went. But he did change his methods to fit his audience. Why? To pander to them? No. To remove barriers. To gain a hearing for the gospel. Whatever it took to reach people, Paul was willing to do it. How does that apply to us today? Beloved, people watch the way we live. They see us. They see us on a daily basis. Our neighbors, our friends, our co-workers, our spouses. They draw conclusions about our values from what we do and what we don't do. Where we go, where we don't go. The things we say, the jokes we tell, the songs we sing, the books we read, the shows we watch. All those things send a message about our ultimate values. And you have to stop and you have to ask yourself, are these things glorifying to the Lord? It's not a simple list of do's and don'ts. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a mindset. I'll close with this. In the first century, the world was a frightful, in frightful condition. This is just one writer's kind of deal on the Reformation. He says, one does not need to be a great authority on Roman history to know that. There were signs of the breakdown of the Roman Empire, rampant hedonism, and a dissolution of morals. But at the same point, God was pleased to send into the world that great preacher of the sovereignty of God, the Apostle Paul. And this introduced a brand new principle into the total structure. The preaching of Paul did not avert the collapse of the Roman Empire, but it postponed it. Moreover, it permitted the creation of a body of believers that persisted through, that, through the terrible invasions of the barbarian hordes and even through the dark ages in the 16th century the church had succumbed to deep corruption it was corrupt in its head and members in many ways it was a cesspool of iniquity people did not know how to remedy the situation they tried councils they tried internal purges they tried monastic orders none of these things seemed to work but God again raised up to his glory, men who proclaimed the truth of his sovereignty and the truth of God's grace. In proclaiming this truth, they brought a multitude of the children of God into a new sense of their dependence upon and relationship to Christ. In proclaiming this truth, they benefited even the very people who opposed them in their tradition of the church. These are small they are small, these men of the Reformation. They had little money, little power, little influence. One was a portly little monk in Germany. Another was a frail little professor in Geneva. The third was a ruddy but lowly little man in Scotland. What could they possibly do? In themselves, nothing. But by the power of God, they shook the world. Radically corrupted, but sovereignly purified. Radically enslaved, but sovereignly emancipated. Radically unable, but sovereignly empowered. These men were blessed by God to be a blessing to us. To God alone be the glory. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we pray that as we've closed off this series, that we would be reminded that it's for your glory and your glory alone. That the chief end of man is to glorify you. 
find pleasure in you, not in ourselves. And Father, that affects every aspect of our life, even as believers. It affects the way we look at our salvation. It affects the way we look at our fellowship with one another. It affects the way that we minister to one another. It affects the way that we worship here together as a body. Lord, I pray that we would be known as a church that that seeks to honor and to glorify you and you alone, not an individual pastor, an individual elder, an individual deacon. But Lord, all glory goes to you. And Father, without you, we would not be here. Without you, we would have no salvation to speak of. We would still be steeped in our sin on our way to hell. But Lord, it's because of your genuine love for us that you sent your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to do a work that we could not do, to pay a price that we could never pay, to satisfy a debt that was beyond our ability to satisfy. And so, Father, for that we give you all glory and honor. We thank you for our salvation. Lord, if there's someone here this morning who's yet to put their faith or trust in you, Father, I pray that they would understand there's no other to turn to. There's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. It's the work of Christ and Christ alone, through grace alone, through faith alone. And so, Lord, we pray these things for your glory, for your honor. Bless our time of fellowship across the way. Bless that food to our bodies. We ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.